Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would be with us, you would attend to your word by your spirit, and that your word would not return void. Father, we pray that uh, your word would speak to our hearts, uh, that we would find comfort and even confidence in it in times like this. Lord, be with us. Bless the preaching of your word, even in the manner in which it is done through this technology. Would you still bless it? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to make note of a few things before uh, we jump into this psalm. Uh, for those of you who are watching on live stream here, you cannot see what the rest of us are able to see out here. Uh, our administrative assistant here at the church uh, here on staff, Cheryl Rader, so graciously did a big project for me, and she put the pictures of all of our members taped to the pews out here because I have gotten so tired of preaching to a camera and trying to envision your faces through that camera lens and it's just been too difficult. And so what I get to see here is the faces of all the members of Kinney Avenue out in the pews and it's good because you're all smiling. <laughs> Big smiles on all your faces and so it makes me think you're ready to hear from God and his word and, uh, and it allows me to look out here and just, just try to get somewhat of a glimpse again of what it was like when we were gathered together. So I'll send a picture out of that, and you'll be able to see that uh, this week, Lord willing. Another thing I want to make note of is we're in Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. We're going to be working through the book of Psalms um, until we are able to gather again uh, for worship as God's people. I, I just thought... It just didn't feel appropriate to me to keep working through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a book that requires you to be really focused in. Uh, the goal was to finish up the Gospel of Mark and then, then hit on the Gospel of Mal or the, the prophecy of Malachi in the Old Testament, and then, Lord willing, in the new year to start the book of Romans. It looks like we're going to have to delay all of that. Um, but I wanted to work through the Psalms just because it, it just feels appropriate. It seems right during this time. The Psalms help us in times of distress. The Psalms capture the human experience perhaps like nothing else in Scripture. Uh, when you go to the Psalms, uh, you can find something in there of what you're feeling, what you're going through, what life is like. They're so relatable. And I thought it would be helpful for us just to work through the Psalms during this particular time. And so we'll be in the Psalms, just kind of jump around. I'm not going to work through, you know, the Psalms chronologically as you can see, we're beginning in Psalm chapter 2 this morning. So we'll be jumping around a little bit, but I pray it's a blessing uh, to you. As this passage was read, Psalm chapter 2, I want to ask you, whom do you identify with in this passage? Who is it that you kind of step into their shoes and say, oh yeah, that's me? I hope it's not the Lord's anointed as he's a major figure in this passage, the Lord's anointed. Because as we're going to see, this psalm just puts on display the Lord's anointed as one who is not just some ordinary person, and it's not us. So who do you identify with? I wonder if some of you identified yourself with the nations and the peoples who rage against the Lord and his anointed. You are one who is in rebellion 
against God and his Messiah. And you think this passage is saying to you, God is looking at you and he's laughing at your foolishness and your vain revolt against him. Now, that would be an accurate application to you if you are not a Christian. If you are not someone who is trusted in God's anointed, namely Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and you have not bowed the knee to him, and you're not relying fully upon what he accomplished in the place of sinners in his death and resurrection, then you actually do need to heed the warning at the end of the psalm, which says this, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way, because his wrath is quickly kindled. That would be an accurate application to you if you're not a Christian. Here's my concern. Too many Christians read a passage like this and insert themselves in the place where a non-Christian should insert themselves. And non-Christians don't insert themselves in the place they should in passages like this. If you are a Christian, if you are one who is trusting solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place, then that means God is your father, Jesus is your king, and that's a good thing. You should find comfort in that, not fear that his wrath is going to be quickly kindled against you because Jesus already absorbed that wrath for you in your place when he died on the cross. And so all you know from God now is mercy, compassion, love, grace. And so who do you identify with? Who do you identify with in this passage? There's only three main characters. God, his anointed and the nations who rebel against God and his anointed. There's only three main characters mentioned in this passage. So who are you, as a Christian, supposed to identify with here? I want to suggest to you that you're not supposed to identify with anyone who's mentioned in the passage. You need to identify with the original recipients of the passage. Who is that? The nation of Israel, that's old covenant people of God whom God loved, chose to be his own. Think of how they would have read this psalm. How would they have received this psalm? What benefit would this psalm about the fact that nations are raging against God and his king, how would that have benefited the people of Israel at that time? Think about this. This, this happened. They were, they were under a, a monarchy where they had a human king ruling over them, and that king was supposed to stand in the place of God and represent God for them. Many failed human kings. They, they were sinners. But the king was supposed to represent the people. The king was supposed to protect the people. And so if you have these nations and these other kings and these other rulers who are coming and surrounding your king, threatening to overthrow him, that wouldn't be of much comfort if the people knew that the king could be overthrown. What would it mean if the peoples here who are plotting against the king could actually overthrow their king? It would, what would that mean for the people? It would mean they're toast. They're going to be destroyed because as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people of the king. Think about the game chess. I'm not an expert in chess. I played it a few times and lose every time. Well, how do I lose? 
How do you lose the game of chess? What is the goal of the game of chess? It's not to capture your opponent's, uh, it's not to capture every one of your opponent's chess pieces, right? The goal is to capture which one? The king. The king is captured, game over. Even if there's other moves that still need to be played, but if the king is, is captured, it doesn't matter if the person still has pieces left. Game over. The main truth conveyed in this psalm to the people of the king is this. God's chosen king will not be overthrown. God's chosen king will not be defeated. He will not be conquered ultimately. You think, wait a minute. You look back throughout the history of Israel and it seemed like the king got conquered an awful lot. So how can this be? How can this psalm state this in such a way? We're going to see because it's ultimately fulfilled in the greatest king of all who has not, will not ever be conquered. And I hope by the time this psalm comes to a close, you're going to, you're going to identify with the people of Israel as the new people of God in the New Testament who have a new king who is not conquered. We'll see that as it comes to a close towards the end. So I want to work through this psalm. As we work through it, I want to observe this truth that God's king will never be defeated. His chosen king will not be conquered. And we're going to see that demonstrated in four ways throughout this passage. Number one, the truth that God's king will never be defeated is demonstrated in this. How foolish it is to rebel against God's chosen king. Look at verse one. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. So you got this raging here of these nations, and then there's a parallel of that statement in the second line. This is how the Psalms often work. The second line of verse one says, the peoples plot in vain. So the nations, the peoples, same group, and they're raging and they are plotting. The raging means they are plotting. What is, what's going on here? It Clearly this is a bad thing. The nations, the peoples, are raging and plotting in what sense? What, what, is this, what does this mean? Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So that helps us understand what this raging and plotting is, right? And what it means that the nations and the peoples are raging and plotting. It's that their kings, their rulers are plotting. Why? Because the kings represent the peoples. That's a theme all throughout this psalm. If the kings are plotting and raging, then they're doing it on behalf of their people. They are setting themselves, setting themselves, they're taking their stand and they're counseling together. So you have different nations here, different peoples represented by different kings and rulers who are plotting and taking counsel together, setting themselves together Against whom? Second part of verse 2. Against the Lord and his anointed. Now I want you to see the picture that's being painted here with this psalm. It seems the picture that's being painted is you have nations surrounding the one nation Israel. That's when this psalm was written. That's what it's talking about. 
And these nations are, are working together to come against and overthrow God's anointed. Who's that? As many of you know, the word anointed is the same word from which we get Messiah. And this word was used throughout the Old Testament mainly in reference to the king of Israel. And so for the psalmist to say that the nations are coming against the Lord's anointed, it's another way of them saying they're coming against the king of Israel. Who's that? Who's that in this psalm here? It's actually the psalmist himself. In Acts chapter 4, we see that the king here, the psalmist here, is David, King David. And so David, God's anointed king, is describing these nations that are surrounding Israel, and, and they're really, these nations, these kings are coming against him. This is a battle scene. This is war imagery. Now, we don't know if this was a specific event that David is referring to. Frankly, it seemed to happen several times in his kingly career. <laughs> Poor guy. And so he's probably just referring to a pattern of the nations that surrounded Israel to try to come against the nation of Israel, and specifically God's anointed king. And notice what David points out. When the nations come against him as king, they're not just coming against him. They're coming against the Lord. You see that there in verse 2. They're taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So to come against the king is to come against the Lord himself. Why is that the case? We'll get why as the psalm plays out. They are setting themselves against God's chosen king. The king of Israel functioned as God's representative. He represented God's rule on earth. At least that's what he was supposed to do. And so the kings of the earth rising up against the king of Israel, they're really rising up against God himself. And notice what they're saying in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All right, what are they getting at? What's their problem with the king of Israel? And through the king of Israel, their problem is with the Lord. What's their problem? They do not like being under their authority. They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. In other words, this, this authority that the king of Israel has, the power that he's given, we don't like it. The authority that the, the king of Israel's God has given them, we don't like it. We don't want to be under the authority of the God of Israel. So they are fed up. They want to be their own authority. Their view of submitting to the authority of God as king is oppressive and enslaving. And so they say, let us burst their bonds, cast away their cords from us. Now I want to propose to you that the attitude of the surrounding nations who are coming against the king of Israel and coming against God in particular, whether they realize it or not, that attitude is the same attitude of every person who rejects God as their king. All throughout history, up until the present day, our natural bent is to be our own authority. The thought of having to submit to the authority of God is repulsive to many. I've had many conversations with uh, non-Christians, 
over the years about the gospel, about what it means to become a Christian. And I've actually found this common theme in my conversations with many Christians. Maybe this is unique just to the West. I don't know. But the main reason I found for why people reject Christianity is not mainly because they think the truth claims of Christianity are invalid. Now, no doubt, there are some who say, I, I just, I can't believe this idea that a guy actually rose from the dead. It sounds phony to me. Now, there's some who definitely say that. And I have no doubt in their hearts, they, they are genuine about that. They, they actually believe that that cannot have happened. But I want to propose to you the main reason, as I've had conversations with Christians, and as I study the word, the main reason why non-Christians reject Christianity is not mainly intellectual. Their main obstacle is not the truth claims that Christianity makes. Their main obstacle is the authority of God. What do I mean by that? Non-Christians know, at least when they're told, that to become a Christian, you give up your life. To become a Christian, you are no longer your own authority. You're placing yourself under the authority of another, namely God himself. It means coming under the authority of God and being willing to give up yourself as your own authority. I remember talking to one specific non-Christian friend of mine. We developed a really good relationship. We worked together. Uh, I love this brother very much, this, this friend of mine very much. And, uh, and we'd have very honest conversations and I'd tell him about the gospel. I'd tell him about the good news of Jesus Christ. And he would say to me, look, I believe everything you're saying. I really do. I mean, I, I, I think all of that is true. So well, then what, what's going on? Why are you not a Christian then? And he said, because I don't want to give up what I love doing. I, I, I can't, the thought of having to give up my life to follow God just sounds off-putting to me. And what I would often remind him of is this. Yeah, you're giving that up, but you're gaining everything. It's not a loss. It's a gain. But in his mind, mindset, he saw it as a loss. He saw as submitting to the authority of God as a loss. And frankly, I really appreciated his honesty. Because even those who say that their main obstacle to becoming a Christian is primarily intellectual, like I don't believe the truth claims of Christianity, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, I don't believe these things are true. Even those who say that, I have found that that most often is a facade to cover up the real reason for why they reject Christianity. And the real reason is they love their sin. They don't want to give up sleeping with their girlfriend. They don't want to give up partying with their friends. They don't want to give up what they think is a wonderful thing of relaxing on Sunday mornings rather than having to go to church. They don't want to give these things up. Now, I want to say to you, if you are not a Christian and you're listening to this, my goal is not to offend. I don't, I don't want to offend you. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to do. 
but at the same time, I do want to challenge you. I, I, I often remind my non-Christian friends of this. If I truly believe the things that I believe about, about Christianity, that the only way to get to God is through belief in his son, Jesus Christ, and embracing him as, as Lord, if I truly believe that and I don't impress that upon you, I don't love you. I don't really care about you. And so I'm saying these things out of love and, and to challenge you, not to offend you, to challenge you, I want to press into your heart. Why are you holding back, really? Ask yourself that question. This, these are two important things to play games with. Don't play games with life. Why are you holding back? What is your real obstacle to becoming a Christian and following Jesus, giving your life to him? What's the real obstacle? Is it intellectual? Or is that just a facade? Because the real dilemma for you is moral. You don't want to give up your sin. You don't want to give up the comfortable life that you love that is a life apart from Christ. The attitude of the nations here in verses 1 to 3 is no different than the attitude of all who reject Christ. Now, I want to ask, whom is God's anointed, really? I mean, who is he? Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is that? David wrote this, and he certainly has himself in mind here at one level. And on another level, David certainly has in mind the kings that would follow in his lineage. The issue, though, is that this psalm goes on to describe the Lord's anointed as one who can't just be any ordinary human being. What he, who he is and what he gets is too much for an ordinary human being, especially those flawed and sinful and mortal human kings who followed in David's line. The anointed king of Israel is not just some ordinary king. And so David explains the point he's making in these first three verses. What is the point that he's making here? The getting to who is the Lord's anointed here. Who really is this guy? What David explains here, the point he's making in verses one to three helps us understand that he can't just be referring to himself or the kings that followed him. It has to be someone much more. What's the point he's making in verses one to three? Notice what he says in verse one. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's a question, but David really isn't seeking an answer. It's rhetorical. He's not saying, you know, I'm, I'm really curious as to what the motives are behind the nations who are raging and plotting against me, against the Lord and his anointed. What, what's, what's the reasons behind this? That's not his point. His point is, this is foolish. What are they doing this for? Because you notice it says, why are they raging? Why do the people's plot in what? Vain. This is all pointless, so why are they doing this? It is foolish for them to do this. That's, that's point number one. The fact that God's king will not be overthrown is demonstrating the fact of how foolish it is for nations to try to overtake him. Number two, 
God's chosen king will never be conquered. And that's demonstrated in, secondly, the fact that the divine, from the divine perspective of rebellion against God's king. In other words, we can have confidence that God's chosen king will not be conquered by looking at the raging and the plotting against God's king from God's perspective. Look at it from God's perspective. And that's going to help you understand God's king will not be overthrown. Look at what it says in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I love that verse. In verses 1 to 3, you have a picture of many massive armies coming against and surrounding the king of one nation, Israel. And it looks like checkmate. The only logical response would be to wave the white flag of surrender. But then that picture, that scene shifts from that perspective to God's perspective. And it shifts from earth to heaven. And we get to see how God feels about what he's seeing here on earth. He's not wringing his hands. He's not super anxious. He's not fretting. What is he doing? He's laughing. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens laughs. I love the way one person put it. He said this. What is God's reaction to the haughty words of these pygmy human rulers? God does not tremble. He does not hide behind a vast celestial rampart counting the enemy and calculating whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this new challenge to his kingdom, he does not even rise from where he is sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles. Yes, that was a Bible commentator. Old one. They spoke a little bit more bluntly back in the day. I love it. This is, not, this is, this is the only place in Scripture where we see God laughing. As far as I know, I don't know of any other place in the Bible where it mentions God laughing. And he's not laughing at a funny joke. He's laughing as a way of mockery of these foolish kings who actually think they can overthrow God's chosen king. You picture God in heaven on his throne. I love the picture. You should really think these puny kings can actually overthrow my appointed king their actions are so ridiculous, God is cracking up. And then the psalmist tells us what to do, what God will do with these puny rulers. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So, so from his just and righteous anger, he's laughing and his laughter is from a righteous wrath and anger towards their rebellion of him. And out of his anger, he's going to put them in their place. He's going to show them that their attempts to overthrow him by overthrowing his chosen king are utterly vain. Why? Verse 6 tells us. Look at what verse 6 says to these, what God says to these rulers. He says, as for me, I have set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. The word I in the original language is emphatic. I've done this. I've set, them, I've set up my king. This is what I have done, and therefore they will not be able to over, overthrow my decree. 
Now Zion there, he said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's another uh, a way of describing Jerusalem. That city upon which God said the king will sit on his throne and rule from that city in the nation of Israel. And God is saying, I put my king there. That, the king did not set himself up there. Like these other rules who set themselves against the Lord's anointed. This king was set up there by God himself. This is God's perspective on human rebellion. And such perspective should give God's people comfort. When we look around the world and we see how much chaos there is, we feel chaos. I mean, even though times feel kind of slow right now, it still feels so unsettled, right? It shouldn't seem right. You know, we see the chaos happening. We look on the news and all these deaths and all these people dying and people catching this coronavirus. We've seen chaos even before all of this. And when we look around and we furthermore see rebellion against God, we see so much rampant wickedness and disregard for who God is and what God loves and what God values. We see our own culture here in the United States heading in a direction, as it has been for a while now, heading in a direction that is against God's values in God's word. And frankly, people are just revealing what they've, what's always been in their hearts, just coming out more perhaps than it has in the past. These things that we know are good, God's, what God's word says, what he values, things that we know are good and good for our children and our grandchildren and future generations, but our society is outright rejecting the things of God and bringing harm to future generations. You feeling that? It is very tempting for us to feel defeated or it could be very tempting for us to find our comfort and confidence in a political leader, in a new president or the current president, whatever our political persuasion is. We find comfort in a king, if you will, of the nations. Or we just feel defeated, we feel anxious, maybe even looking on the news, seeing all the chaos, and you're ready to wave the white flag of surrender. The reason why it is so tempting for us to feel this way about these things that we see as we look in the world is because we're failing to see things from God's perspective. We're looking at it through our own human lens. He who sits in the heavens laughs at what's going on. God's not wringing his hands. God is never anxious. That should be a comfort to you if you're one of God's people. Nothing can come against God's chosen king, ultimately. And it's just a matter of time until he says, look, enough of this. And he puts all, an end to all rebellion and all chaos. We need to see it from God's perspective. Number three. The truth that God's chosen king will never be overthrown is demonstrated in this. The promise of possession for God's chosen king. The promise of what this chosen king will one day possess. Look at verse 7. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son and today I have begotten you. Okay, so just bring us to where we are. This, this is the psalmist talking again. This is David talking, the anointed one in some sense, but we know he can't be the ultimate anointed one. 
But God just said in verse 6, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then in, in verse 7, David goes on to say, let me tell you about this decree that God made. God said he has done this. Let me tell you about the time when he actually did this. I'm going to tell you about his plan, his promise to this chosen king. And he says, I will tell you of this decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Does that sound familiar? You heard those words quoted anywhere else in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament. We read about it earlier in Hebrews chapter 1. Who is this son in verse 7? On one level, it's David. Because he says, the Lord said to me. Now, when did God say this kind of thing to David? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember the promise God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what is known as the Davidic covenant, the covenant to King David. Here's what it says. I will raise up for you offspring after you, you sh who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then it says this. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now wait a minute. 2 Samuel 7 indicates that this wasn't just a promise for David. Although David is saying the Lord said to me these things in, in Psalm chapter 2. But it's actually a promise for all the kings who would follow in David's line. Which explains why the king of Israel was referred to as God's son. But the language here is just way too vast, both in 2 Samuel 7 and in Psalm chapter 2. It, the language is too big to be referring to any one of those kings in David's line. It says in 2 Samuel 7, his throne will be forever. His throne, the, the throne of this king, the kingdom upon which, over which he rules will last forever. He will be a forever king. So is there going to be a king? In David's line, who's not going to die? Right? Because that's what it takes for someone to be a king forever. They can't die, right? Or perhaps it's a king who died but didn't stay dead and lives forever after that. This has to be referring to someone more than just David or the kings who followed. Especially when we consider what else God says to this son. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, this is God speaking to this son, this king. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a reference to the universal rule of God's chosen king. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. Remember those nations in verses 1 to 3 who are coming against the king of Israel? God says, I'm going to give them to him. I'm going to give this, these nations to you as your possession. And it sounds like the purpose of possession here of these nations is, is for judgment. See that in verse 9? You shall break them. It could be you shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. These, these nations are no threat against God's chosen 
king because God promised to give the nations to this king as his very possession. This just doesn't sound like any king in the nation of Israel. There's something bigger taking place here. But the point is still made. God's chosen king will not be defeated by the nations because God promised the nations as his inheritance. That language of giving the nations to you as your heritage, think of a firstborn son in that day. Firstborn son inherited all the blessings and the inheritance of his father. That's the imagery that's being used here. And what is the inheritance that this son would receive? It's the whole world. That's his inheritance. Number four, the truth that God's chosen king will never be defeated is demonstrated, number four, in the warning of rebellion against God's chosen king. Notice this warning of rebellion against God's chosen king. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So the the psalmist now is closing out the psalm by turning his attention back to these foolish kings whom he opened up the psalm talking about. And he tells them, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. But notice what he says there in verse 11. Not only serve the Lord with fear, but also, verse 11, rejoice with trembling. That seems odd to me. Why should they rejoice? Yeah, okay, with trembling, get the resembling, trembling part, get the fear part, because, because they're trying to come against God's chosen king, and, and the king possesses them as an inheritance, seemingly for the purpose of judgment, yet they're to rejoice? Why are they to rejoice? The psalmist gives us a, a hint of what it looks like to truly fall under the authority of this king. Yes, there should be trembling because of rebellion, but there still is reason to rejoice, even for those who come against the king. Notice how the psalmist closes. In verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then notice this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't that weird? Seems odd to me. Like, it just seems like there's all this judgment against these nations, right? Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Clearly, the, the sun there in verse 12 is the son of verse 7, right? This is God's chosen king. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the psalmist says to these rebellious rulers, these kings of the nations, that their only hope by not being, of not being consumed by wrath is to kiss the sun. Now, what was that act? What, what, was that, what was that demonstrating? This is not some romantic affection, right? This is a way of paying homage to the sun. Respect, falling under his kingly rule. Kiss the sun. Humble yourself under his authority over you. Why? Verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is really interesting, isn't it? That language there, kiss 
the son, and then it goes on to say, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This does not sound like language that is to be reserved for any ordinary human being. In fact, that sounds like language that should be attributed to God alone. Kiss the son lest he be angry and his wrath is poured out on you. And then it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That sounds like you should be talking about God. Whenever you look in, in the Psalms and this theme of finding refuge is, is almost always found in God. Yet who are we to find refuge in here? Verse 12, kiss the son. Lest who be angry? The son. Lest whose wrath be quickly kindled? The son's. And where are we to find refuge? In the son. So who is this son? It's not David. It can't be David. And it can't be the kings who followed. We get greater revelation by the time we get to the New Testament and we find out who this king really is. I want you to actually flip over to Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts chapter 4. I encourage you, those who are watching in, to follow along your Bible. Look at Acts chapter 4. We're going to see who this son is. Acts chapter 4, um, let's begin in verse, uh, let's look at verse 23. Acts 4, 23. When they were released, that's referring to Peter and John, who had just been in prison for preaching the gospel. When they were released, they went to their friends, which is the church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, this is the church, when the church at that time heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, catch what they say, why did the nations, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Straight from Psalm chapter 2. They quote Psalm 2 and notice how they apply Psalm chapter 2. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city were gathered, there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom? Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see how they're applying Psalm 2? The nations were the peoples, ultimately, that found, their, that found its fulfillment, ultimately, in those who came against Jesus, the true anointed of the Lord, the true Messiah of the Lord, and they killed him. Wait a minute. The king can't be conquered. Isn't that what Psalm 2 is all about? Yet Jesus was killed. But when we get to Acts chapter 13, and they apply Psalm chapter 2 to that situation, you know how they apply it? The king conquered through his resurrection. The king did not stay dead. Yes, they killed him, but they did not conquer him because he rose from the dead. And notice they say, this was all ordained by God himself to happen. These people did whatever God's plan and, 
and, and hand predestined would take place. And notice how they apply that in verse 29. Notice what they pray, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon the threats, look upon their threats, and grant your, to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Isn't that interesting? What's the point they're making? In the midst of this persecution, where people are coming against us, your people, Lord, the people of King Jesus, they're coming against us. They're, they're, they, they plotted against him. They're plotting against us. Give us boldness. Why? Because they couldn't conquer the king. And if they couldn't conquer the king, they can't conquer the king's people. And so they're praying for boldness because Jesus is God's unconquerable chosen king. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. This is why Psalm 2 should be of such comfort for us and give us confidence that the king was not conquered. We will neither be conquered ultimately either. Now, in light of that ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2, the fact that, that it is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, I want to revisit the main point of Psalm 2. What is the main point? What is the truth that we, God's people, should find confidence in and find comfort in from Psalm 2? The truth we looked at was God's chosen king will not be conquered. Now we know who that king is. This is the point of Psalm 2. Jesus will not be conquered. Death did not conquer him. Sin did not conquer him. Pontius Pilate and those who came against him did not conquer him, and neither will he ever be conquered again. Jesus was not conquered by his enemies. Jesus won. Now, in light of that, think of the different points in Psalm 2 that we worked through. Think of how foolish it is to rebel against God and his chosen king, Jesus Christ. Why do you do it? This is why I, I state, if you're non-Christian, why are you doing this? It's foolish. You won't win. Come to the king. Come to him. It is foolish to rebel against God's chosen king because God sits in the, in the heavens and laughs at our rebellion. He laughs at those who think they can rebel against him. How do we know God has done this and set up his king? Because God promised it to King Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now when did God, think about when God the Father promised that to Jesus, God the Son. When did that happen? You are my son, today I have begotten you. Think about when Jesus just began his public ministry. John the Baptist baptized him, and as soon as he came up out of the water, what did he hear from heaven? He heard these words from God the Father. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. That was Jesus' installation service as king. That was his kingly installation service. And this is why Hebrews chapter 1 that we read earlier quotes this verse, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That doesn't mean that Jesus became the son of God when he came here as a man and, and started his public ministry. 
That's a way of describing the fact that he, is, he as the true king is now being put on display. This is the king we've been waiting for. You are my son. Today I'm showing everyone in the world that you're my true king. It was God the Father's public declaration of the true king whom he chose. And God asked his son, what, what do you want, my son, as your inheritance? And Jesus requested what? Give me the nations. I want the nations. Well, when did that happen? Well, Psalm 2, it looks like that the king's possession of the nations would be for the purpose of judgment merely. That the king would get the nations and just conquer them. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we find that the possession of the nations for this king is not mainly for the purpose of judgment, but for the purpose of redemption. Think about how the Bible ends. Revelation, the end of Revelation, book of Revelation, in Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, says this. Worthy are you, this is talking to the chosen king, this is talking to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they, the nations, people from the nations, shall reign on the earth. Why? Because as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. The king conquered, the king reigns, and therefore his people are more than conquerors through him who loved them. That's, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, doesn't he? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because the king conquered, and we conquer with him. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? We know that verse, but why is that true? Why is Paul so convinced? And why should we be so convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love? Why will you never be separated from God's love for you? Never, all the way into eternity. Why? Because he who sits in the heavens laughs at your sin. Your sin that says, you're not worthy to be in communion with God. He who sits in the heavens laughs at death. That says, death is going to keep you in the grave. You will not be able to enter his presence. Because you'll be in the grave, dead, gone, done. He who sits in the heavens laughs at his enemy, Satan, who says, you aren't worthy of the love of God. Look at what you did yesterday. Look at what you did this past week. Think about how sinful you are. And this is what the accuser does. And, 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 and what he tries to do in order to tempt you to sin is to think that repentance will be really easy and getting back into fellowship with God will be really easy. Oh, just do it. You'll be able to, you'll be able to deal with this later. And then after your sin, you're overcome with such guilt that you think repentance now and this is what the accuser does. You think repentance now and fellowship with God is impossible. He who sits in the heavens laughs at his enemies because nothing, no one can conquer God's chosen king. That's what Psalm 2 is about. 
Church, let us rejoice in that and let us take refuge in him. Let's pray together.